It's my joy to get to open up God's word with you this morning. So if you would please go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be looking at uh, primarily verses 1 through 10 uh, this morning. Uh, if you're uh, going to use the Bible in the seat back in front of you, it's on page 953. 953. Well, I came across an article by the USA Today uh, this past week that really grabbed my attention. Uh, this is what the title said Awe makes us happier, healthier, and humbler. Awe makes us happier, healthier, and humbler. Uh, one of the reasons it, it grabbed my attention was, uh, and caught my eye was because um, that's not the kind of title that you would normally see or expect to see in the USA Today or by really any secular news organization for that matter. Uh, inside this, this article, it, it says, according to researchers, which, which by the way, how do you get a PhD in awe? Well, that's what I want. <laughs> but according to these researchers, a sense of awe should be a regular part of our lives, not just reserved for those big special moments like uh, going to the Grand Canyon. My family and I had the opportunity of doing that earlier uh, this year. And as we stood on the South Rim, there was definitely, uh, most definitely, this, this wonder, this amazement, this awe the sheer magnitude and size of the, of the Grand Canyon. But the researchers are saying that, that we need that every day in our lives. It should be a regular part of our experience. The researchers also say that we feel awe when we encounter something with qualities so extraordinary that it seems incomprehensible. And the, the article goes on and says, when this happens, Awe is shown to make us happier, cause greater life satisfaction. It makes us uh, care more about other people. And it even increases our humility. How interesting. Now, I just love it when, when God's uh, common grace gives non-believers truthful insights at times. You see, God, God created awe. Awe is his, it belongs to him. He gives us awe. And it struck me as I was studying this first Peter passage this week that we all just need a lot more awe of God in our lives. Awe, I refer to it as a lot of times as happy in God. We all just need a lot more happy in God moments in our lives. And we're fortunate because our text for today in First Peter chapter two is really in particularly an awe-inspiring text. So let me just encourage us this morning that as we explore the Lord's incomprehensible beauty, let's just be in wonder of who he is. Now let me also provide the, the main awe-provoking truth, the, if you will, main happy in God-provoking point uh, from our text this morning. You can see it on the screens. We are a chosen people being built up as a holy temple to display God's marvelous excellence. I'll say it again. We are a chosen people being built up as a holy temple to display God's marvelous excellence. And the question that's before us here as we enter into this, this text and see how this is true, uh, 
is how should we respond to this? How should we respond? How might we think about this? And, I, and so I, I just wanna share from this text this morning three ways that we can respond, just three. There's probably more. But three ways that we can respond to this, this truth and be awed by the Lord this morning. With that in mind, First Peter uh, chapter two, we're actually gonna uh, pick up in chapter one, verse 22, because uh, very early on in the verses of chapter two, Peter is just really uh, continuing the flow of thought that he started in the previous paragraph. So if you would please follow along as I read in First Peter chapter one, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Now chapter two, verse one. So put away, therefore, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So uh, Peter continues here in verse one with, with so, or, or it might, we might say therefore. Uh, therefore, it means in light of what I just said, put away, uh, put away. It has the idea of taking something off, of, of removing a, a piece of clothing, and Peter says here that, that we're to put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Um, these are all socio-relational sins and they should, should not be a part of our lives. Why is that? Well, uh, to be quite frank about it, because that's unloving to each other. Uh, in, in chapter one, verse 22, Peter just got done commanding believers to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And these kinds of, of sins should not be characterized by a loving one another people. So in verse two, he, he says, and this is implied, instead, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. Peter uses this, this metaphor of, of, of a baby desiring milk from its mother. He says, long for, strong desire for, uh, maybe a more vivid, a vivid word would be crave, be crave. And so just like newborn babies crave their mother's milk, we should crave this pure spiritual milk. Uh, think about this picture for a moment. When my daughters were babies and they were still uh, nursing, whenever they became hung hungry, they would do exactly what other babies do when they get hungry. Uh, they'd get fussy and they would cry. You see, they, they had a craving for, for milk and they were inconsolable until they, they, they were able to taste and, and receive this milk. Their, their, very, uh, their bodies were contorted and they were screaming and crying. And, and I, if I was holding one, I would quickly rush them over to my wife. <laughs> and then the really interesting thing is that the instant their tongues tasted the milk, it was like <sighs> milk coma. Their bodies became calm. They no longer cried. The milk that they tasted satiated, satisfied that craving that they had. 
And Peter is using uh, this metaphor to help us understand what should characterize us as believers. We ought to crave the pure spiritual milk. Now what this pure spiritual milk is will become more clear in just a moment, so hang with me. But let me just summarize uh, what, what, um, what this is saying here. We should crave God himself. God sustains us. He is our sustenance. In the middle here of verse two, it says, so that by it, you may grow up into salvation. We may grow up into salvation. See, Peter here is is talking uh, about all believers in every kind of stage of their spiritual maturity. He's not using this metaphor of of infants and babies to imply that this only uh, has a a context for uh, people who are new believers, baby, infant Christians, okay? This applies to all of us, no matter where you're at in your spiritual maturity. This spiritual milk is necessary for growth and health uh, in the lives of all followers of Jesus. And drinking this pure spiritual milk is what causes the growth. Think about how quickly a baby grows, aided by its mother's milk. And we are to be growing up into this final salvation that comes when Jesus returns. That's when Jesus returns, our sanctification, our progressive maturing will will reach its finality and we will be fully mature in Christ. And, And Peter says, hey, do that by craving the Lord. Now, don't miss this here in verse three, okay? Peter's about to drop a nice big uh, awe bomb on us, okay? Uh, A big happy in God bomb. So watch this. He says in verse three, if, this is a conditional statement, if you indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Our English translations don't really uh, convey this very well, but in the the original text, in the Greek text, it has, this, it has this kind of connotation. If indeed, and for the sake of arguing, I'm gonna assume that you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is an allusion to um, Psalm 34, verse eight, which says, uh, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, that Yahweh is good. Uh, blessed is the man. Actually, uh, the Hebrew word for blessed there is ashray. Uh, a better translation might be happy. Happy is the man. Happy is the woman who takes refuge in Yahweh. And Peter is, is taking that verse and bringing it into this context. So here's the flow. Here's the flow of what's going on here. We taste the Lord's goodness and then we have a greater desire and longing for him. Why do we crave him more? Because the Lord's goodness, his kindness tastes so great. It's better than the best tasting meal you've ever eaten. I've eaten some doozies. The Lord's goodness keeps us wanting more and more and more of him. The more we taste of him, the more we enjoy him. Tell me, are you in awe of that? Over the last hundred years or so, there's been a a renewed focus on obedience to God. Uh, Perhaps uh, you've heard this said or something similar said, it's been said through those years, uh, that discipline leads to desiring God, which then leads to delighting in God. You may have heard it uh, said in this way, God cares more about our holiness than he does our happiness. 
And I think this renewed focus on obedience here is, is, is a helpful corrective because we've seen a, a massive rise of this idea, at least in the Western hemisphere, this idea that um, life is all about my pleasure and I'm just gonna pursue it and we call that hedonism. So life is the pursuit of pleasure and so I'm gonna live it up and live it out. So in that regard, it's been a helpful corrective, but let me push back a little bit. Let me, let me press in just a little bit because that's not what Peter is saying here at all. Peter's saying that when we taste that the Lord is good, it then leads to craving more of him, which then leads to the overflow of obedience. I wanna please God because I've, I've tasted his goodness. He's wet my appetite. He tastes, his kindness tastes good to me. And now I crave him. I long for him more and more. So therefore I, I can't help but please the Lord. So let's be careful not to emphasize obeying God at the expense of enjoying God. It's both and. Let's not set up a false dichotomy. God just wants us happily, holy in Christ. These verses show us that enjoying God leads to greater longing for God, which leads to greater growth in God. So how should we respond to this? Well, quite simply, we should crave the Lord. We ought to crave the Lord, long for the Lord. You see, friends, the Lord is, is the fountain of, of living water. He is the well of, of infinite depth. So we ought to jump in with reckless abandon and drink deeply from this fountain of living water. It's what our souls need. It's what our souls crave, whether you realize it or not. Jesus said that he is the bread of life. So we ought to feast on that bread of life daily. Let's taste, see, enjoy our savior. Jesus is the epicenter of awesomeness. How can we not enjoy that? We need to spend and be spent gazing at him. This is the pure spiritual milk that we are to crave, friends. So I have to ask a question. When's the last time you tasted that the Lord is good? When's the last time you had a happy in God moment? Or have your spiritual taste buds become dull and desensitized? One of my fears is that too many of us are living spiritually malnourished lives today, starved of feasting on the Lord. So what if, I don't know, what if this next week, as we approach the Bible, we just approach it with one question. How might I enjoy God and his word this week? How might I uh, be happy in God and what I read this week? Of course, that also implies that you're, we gotta be in God's word. Let's continue here because Peter keeps moving. Um, look with me, if you would, please, at verse four. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Uh, as you come to him, as you draw near, near to him, you see, it's assumed here in the text that once you've tasted the Lord, your desire for him has you drawing near to him. 
constantly, all the time. So we're to come to him. Who's him? Well, it's Jesus. And it says that, that, that Jesus is rejected by men, but by God the Father, he is chosen and precious. He's the living stone. That's kind of an odd metaphor to use there. Because stones are inanimate objects and are lifeless. But Jesus is the living stone because of his resurrection. He's alive. He didn't stay dead. He was crushed on the cross, but raised to life. That's who we're to come to. But it goes on here in verse five, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, excuse me, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Because of the reality of our union with Christ, it means that we are like living stones as well. We were once dead in our sins and our trespasses. Ephesians 2 verse 1. But Jesus raised us to newness of life through his resurrection. His resurrection became our resurrection. We're alive in him, friends. Does that make you, uh, put you in awe right now? Notice here too, that it says that we are being built up as a spiritual house. Uh, Peter does not have in mind an individual building us up into this spiritual house. He has in mind here this corporate reality. Each one of us, if if we're in Christ, are like living stones and he's building, the Lord is building those up one at a time into this corporate spiritual house, a place of worship. Notice also that this is passive. We're not doing this work. It's the Lord's work. As we come to him then, drinking the pure spiritual milk and tasting his goodness, he builds us up to grow us up into a holy temple, which is the church. This makes God the greatest civil engineer and construction manager ever. And it says here that he's doing this to make us into a priesthood. Now this priesthood is not, not reserved only for those who are called into vocational ministry. No, 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 no. This priesthood is for every believer. And the reason this for all of us is because we all have equal access to the Lord. We don't need a special priest or pastor to represent us to God because Jesus Christ is the great high priest. And even right now at this moment, he's in the throne room of the Godhead and he is mediating for us on our behalf. We have direct access. And so because of Christ, he is inviting us into the inner sanctuary of God. And here's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to offer spiritual sacrifices. Chris, what's a spiritual sacrifice? Well, it's what we're doing right now. Worshiping God in his word. It's worshiping God in prayer. It's worshiping in song like we just did and we're gonna do here at the end of the service. It's praising God, ascribing worth to his name. It's also serving one another. It's obedience to God. It is anything we do for God's glory and pleasure. 
So this is what God is doing. He's building us up into a holy temple to increase worship of his name. So then how should we respond to that? Well, from the text, come to him. Come to him, draw near to him, worship him as he builds us up into this uh, uh, magnificent temple where his glory dwells. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. That's how we should respond to this. You know, I have to say that over the last 14, 15 months, um, it's been a, a real test for this church at times. The pandemic has uh, really tested our mettle. There is no church manual on how to survive a global disease in the midst of a dark, angry world. If somebody did develop that manual, they could retire in a few months. Every church would buy it. At times we've had to fight for unity. We've had to fight against division, fight for unity with one another. Some of you have experienced egregious sins committed against you. Others have had an incredible amount of suffering and loss and pain. And we've all had to get creative. At how do we care for each other in that environment? And yet, God is faithful. He's faithful individually and he's faithful corporately. We read about it in Matthew 16 earlier. Not even the gates of hell will prevail against his church. Much less a stinking pandemic. What's so evident as you look back on this, and I encourage you to do so, not now, but maybe over lunch, I'd like you to pay attention a little bit longer, but maybe over lunch, Look back over all that he's been doing over the last 14 or 15 months here at the church. And it's completely evident that verse five is happening, that he has been building us up into a holy temple. Praise the Lord, that should encourage us, that should comfort us. God is at work, friends. Peter continues here in verse six. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Uh, Peter uh, now explains what he was uh, just saying here in verses four and five by quoting a series of Old Testament passages. First, he quotes Isaiah 28, 16. This is the idea here that God is building us up into a, a spiritual uh, house to offer acceptable spiritual sacrifices to him through Jesus. And, 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 and Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the entire structure. Whew. A cornerstone is a, a stone that builders would use to begin laying a foundation. 
Um, it had to be perfectly level and square because the rest of the foundation would be laid based upon it. And if the cornerstone was off, then the entire foundation would be off. And then the, uh, the whole structure itself would be in jeopardy. Think Leaning Tower of Pisa. <laughs> they started construction of the tower in the 1100s and unfortunately blessed their souls. The base of the, be the building began to sink when they started on the second floor. <laughs> and the reason was that the building's foundation was set on unstable ground. Cornerstone was off. Hear me but not the church. Jesus Christ is our sure foundation. He is the chief cornerstone upon which the entire church is built. The church derives its very existence from Jesus himself. Jesus is the anchor. So let it be known far and wide in this room, online, and to the far reaches of the world. That Jesus Christ will always be the chief cornerstone of Radiant Bible Church. Amen. We will only and always worship him because we only exist because of him. Amen. And may Jesus, when he returns, find us anchored in him to the praise of his glory. And see, we have this, this promise here at the end of verse six, that whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. Uh, in the Greek text, that's the, the strongest emphatic that you could possibly use. It has this idea of like, you will never, ever, ever, ever to infinity be put to shame. So God wants to encourage us that even though people may shame us, we will in fact never ever be put to shame. In fact, Peter says here in verse seven that, that, that it's an honor we enjoy. So may we stand firm in the fame of his name. Such an honor. Notice here though, but not everyone considers the cornerstone an honor. Peter quotes here in uh, the end of seven and then into eight, uh, first Psalm 118.22 and then Isaiah 8.14 to explain uh, that those who do not believe have rejected Jesus. They've stumbled over this, this cornerstone because they, they disobey his word. They're offended by it. Have you noticed that uh, people get really offended by Jesus these days? always been that way since he came and lived and died and rose again and went back to heaven. Sure, maybe some people um, these days are willing to accept some of Jesus' words as a, a moral teacher, an ethical teacher, but they reject some of his harder statements and teachings. And they certainly outright reject the fact that he is the second person of the Trinity, the son of God. And they refuse to submit themselves to his lordship. That's offensive to them. Maybe even some of you in this room. And people don't wanna hear who Jesus is and what he thinks because they've stumbled over him. 
He's an offense. And by the way, it's the primary reason the world is becoming increasingly hostile to us. And Peter throws in the very end of verse eight here, this little phrase, as they were destined to do. You see, he places God's sovereignty in tension with human responsibility. And we need to be okay with that, friends. So the, the point is, is not to get into a God's sovereignty versus free will debate. That's not the text for this. We're not gonna get into that debate. That's not the point. Here's the point, that God is in control of evil. And nothing happens outside of God's sovereign control, his guidance, not even disobedience. So people who have rejected Jesus have to own it. But it's not outside God's sovereignty. And that should be an encouragement. No matter what what happens to us, God's in control of it. Let's look at how uh, Peter finishes here um, in verses nine and 10. But you are a chosen race. I I don't prefer the ESV's translation with the word race there. I think NIV gets it better. It's the idea behind what Peter's saying here is a chosen people, okay? But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter here in verse nine switches gears back to believers. It says we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Notice a royal priesthood, a holy nation and a people for his own possession. You see, these are, these are all allusions to Old Testament passages that were applied to the nation of Israel. And here, Peter is appropriating these truths to the New Testament church, to us. God has chosen us, friends, chosen us. We are a chosen people. We are a royal priesthood because our high priest, King Jesus, has adopted us into his family. So if you're in Christ this morning, congratulations, you're royalty. We are a holy nation. That just means that we, we are a, a people group that is complete un, completely unlike any other people group. And we are a people for his possession, which means we belong to God. We don't belong to the prince of the power of the air. We don't belong to our sins. We belong to him. We are who he says we are. Tell me, are you in awe at this? Is this a a, a happy in God moment for you? I hope so. Because in our awe, this is how we should respond. It's right out of verse nine. Proclaim the Lord. Proclaim the Lord. It says here that God has done all of these things for us through Jesus so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God has done all these things through Jesus so that we may proclaim him to the world, so that we may proclaim him to those still lost in the dark. 
Once we were hopelessly pursuing other lovers, we were not a people. Now that Christ has come, God's righteousness and justice and steadfast love and mercy has come. Once we were nobodies, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our sins and trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Jesus took our old identity of being outcasts and gave us a new one. Now we are the people of God, having received his mercy, which by the way, we still receive and is new every morning. And if you're here and you're wondering who you are, life's got your life upside down. If you're in Christ, then God is reminding you and I that we are chosen and precious. We are a royal priesthood. We are a set apart people. We belong to him as his people. So rest in that. Taste the Lord's goodness in that. Be in awe of the awesomeness of the Lord in that. And then let's go proclaim these excellencies of our savior together. His steadfast love never ceases. He he delights us with his manifest presence. He's the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, omnibenevolent King of kings and Lord of lords. How can we not proclaim him? So let's do that together. Friends, we started this passage, uh, this, this sermon with the passage's central truth and we've been spending time looking at it. And, and, and this is what uh, we said. We are a chosen people being built up as a holy temple to display God's marvelous excellence. God's calling us to respond to him this morning. He's our, a divine delicacy who whets our appetite for him. So let's crave him together. Let's crave more of him. The Lord is our chief cornerstone in whom the entire church is anchored. <laughs> he is building us up, to, up into a place of worship. So let's come to him. Let's draw near to him. And the Lord is our, our royal king who has called us out of darkness into the kingdom of light. So now as children of light, we can go out into the world and proclaim the goodness, kindness of our Lord to the children of darkness. Dear Heavenly Father, we're gonna leave it right there. We we, we thank you for your word. We, we, We thank you for the glorious truth of your word. We thank you for the the Holy Spirit that that is able to work in our hearts, even right now and stirring us up into this, this sense of awe. Oh God, might we crave you more. Might we, we long for you more, starting right now, Lord. May this time in your word have been a time where we've tasted your kindness and your goodness to us, God, and may it keep us coming back to you for more and more and more. God, continue the work that you've begun in us individually and Lord, continue to build your church 
into a holy temple where we can uh, display your marvelous excellence to a dark world who needs you, to a dark world whose souls are craving for you. They're just blind to it. The God of this world has blinded those from recognizing that their greatest need is you. Oh God, help us to proclaim that as we draw near to you. May that, that, that goodness and kindness that you have bestowed upon us overflow into the proclamation of that to others. God, our hope is in you. We are anchored to Jesus Christ. What a glorious truth that is because in Jesus Christ, who's already secured the victory, we will never fail the mission that you have laid out before us. And so God, let us long for you. Let us eagerly anticipate that time when, when, when you return, Lord Jesus, and you ultimately and finally satisfy our souls with indomitable happiness. Until that time, God, may you find us faithful. Help us, O oh God, in Christ's name, amen.